Welcome to the next Think Anesthesia Educational Podcast. I am Amanda Shelby, your host, credentialed veterinary technician specialist in anesthesia and analgesia, and the Think Anesthesia Content Coordinator. Joining me for this episode is my colleague, Dr. Elizabeth Martinez, board-certified specialist in veterinary anesthesia and analgesia. As a young veterinary student at the University of Tennessee, she was inspired to pursue veterinary anesthesia by Dr. Ralph Harvey, our guest in this episode. Dr. Harvey is a board-certified specialist in veterinary anesthesia and analgesia. He serves on the chair of the Veterinary Advisory Board for BioTrace IT and is a consultant in practice and industry promoting best medicine with a focus on the management and relief of veterinary patient pain and suffering. He also focuses on fear-free practices. Prominent in the field of veterinary and anesthesia and following his 33 years as faculty at the University of Tennessee College of Veterinary Medicine, he continues to inspire many veterinary professionals. Also joining us to provide us some information about BioTrace IT and their mission, is co-founder, president, and CEO, Deborah Doolin. Deb has over 20 years of experience in biotech and medical device fields with expertise in business development, sales, research and development, and global market entry. Welcome, Dr. Harvey and Ms. Doolin. I'm excited to reconnect, and we are all very excited to learn and share with our Think Anesthesia audience more about BioTrace IT's Pain Trace as an advancement in identifying and quantifying our patients' pain. My first question, when I was reading through the BioTrace IT's website, what caught my eye? Dr. Harvey was in your bio. You said that BioTrace IT was the reasons you chose to retire from academia. So can you tell our listeners what you saw in this company and its products that led you to that decision? I'm pleased to share that story with you. And thank you for generating this program today, this exciting opportunity for us to join the group with Think Anesthesia and tell this great story. But about six years ago, Deb and I were sitting in the library of the Veterinary College at the University of Tennessee and having a nice conversation. And she started explaining some of the nuts and bolts to me. And I had already had a conversation with my financial advisor and my wife and my administration about potential retirement. And this just put the icing on the cake. This awareness of this technology and this opportunity to be involved with it through an invitation from Deb was just wonderful to me and has changed my life. So it's one of several factors, but certainly a big one. And I hope we can share some of the enthusiasm that we have with your audience as we discuss this technology today. That's great, Dr. Harvey. And I think it goes back to you were an inspiration to me and the reason I got into veterinary anesthesia. So it's great that this has all come full circle. Deb, you have successfully launched biotech and medical devices into the industry. What was the motivation and your inspiration behind the BioTrace IT's pain trace? Yeah, actually, that's a great question. So uh, prior to working with BioTrace IT, I worked in orthopedics for about 10 years with a company on the human health side. Interestingly, I was doing a collaboration between Eli Lilly and Synthase on a rather large national study. We were looking at fracture healing with a compound that was using Forteo, which was usually osteoporosis treatment. And I remember reading the clinical study protocol and going, 
why are we asking people to self-report pain on a scale of zero to 10? <laughs> and then we're timing them standing up from a chair and walking a distance. And that's how we're measuring pain. <laughs> and the funny thing was, is I was ignorant at the time because I was younger and didn't really have much pain. <laughs> so I'd never had anybody ask me on a scale of zero to 10, what's your pain? <laughs> and I did not realize that was the gold standard at the time. So I did a little research and went, oh, wow, this is the gold standard. There was a wonderful article out of the New York Times. It was by a, a female physician writing about her father who is in a, an assisted living situation with dementia. And she described him as the nicest individual with a wonderful demeanor. And all of a sudden he became aggressive and combative um, generally disagreeable. And it took them two months until somebody finally said, do you think he might be painful? And they administered analgesic and he went back to his normal personality. It is a passion to be able to make a difference in people's lives. It is a great honor to be able to serve. Well, it really resonated with me that you just described as pain is a unique experience. My third child came relatively quickly. And of course they're asking you from a one to 10. And I just remember being like, I'm not dying. So it's not a 10, but I can't see I'm in such pain. Whereas another person might describe that as different. I called it an eight, but again, I physically could not see and comprehend what I could see. So it, it is such a unique experience to yes. have something so subjective. Your experience is not unique, of course, and individuals, especially who are first asked to self-evaluate their pain, they're often confused. It's, you know, and I've been in that situation too. Well, let me think, let me think, let me think. And even with verbally interactive species as we are, and even with medical backgrounds as we have, it still is such a challenge to try to convey to someone else. And there's a German term for it, umwelt, that refers to the inherent unknowability of another individual's personal experience. And to guide us in our understanding and our therapy, we need objective analysis. We need objective data. And that's really the big goal, the golden fleece, if you will, in terms of pain assessment is getting an objective assessment. Even self-report is not an objective assessment. It's that individual subjective assessment of their own experience. Certainly when we observe animals' behaviors or lamenesses or ability to perform functions, we're making a subjective evaluation of another individual's behaviors that are influenced by the context and threats of predation or whatever they are that obscure signs of pain. So there's a real need in medical care for the ability to add science. And one of the principles of science is that in order to understand something, we really need to be able to measure it, not just subjectively to put a number on it. We need data. I love this transition to the next question then. Dr. Harvey, would you be able to just detail for our audience exactly what is the pain trace system and how is this allowing us objectivity or a measurable, quantifiable feature to assessment of pain. Yeah, that's a great place to start. What we have is a wearable device that acquires a skin-based electrical signal expressed on the surface of the skin, received from two stick-on contact electrodes. Anatomic location varies with different species. 
but we collect a portion of the electrical activity that's expressed on the surface of the skin. We're not introducing any electrical activity. We're collecting some of the electrical activity that is there. And what we're looking at is the portion of that signal that is very tightly correlated with self-reported pain in people. And so the device filters out and eliminates some of the other electrical activity, for instance, coming from the heart as the ECG is expressed, or the brain with EEG or muscle electrical activity. So we believe we're looking at the crosstalk really in the nociceptive processing between the thalamus and the cortex as it goes up and down, ascending, descending through the amygdala. And we see a spike that's correlated with painful events, a spike in electrical activity. And each individual has their own pain matrix, it's been called. That's the yeah. expression of pain on the surface of the body. And that pain matrix is also an expression not only of these acute episodes, but also of a chronic state. And Deb, let me turn it over to you for your thoughts, because this is key to understanding what we're looking at. Yeah, we talk about this often with individuals that we're working with. The reality is, like you said, pain is a very individual experience. The Institute of Medicine created a report on pain in 2011, and that's when we really started to look at pain as a biological, psychological, and social phenomenon. And to what Ralph had just been explaining is the pain trace provides a composite of afferent and efferent signaling. It's the ability to basically take what is coming up from the peripheral in the afferent messaging to the brain, and then look at the descending pain pathway, or what are we seeing as output from the central nervous system post-processing? When I really draw it down to something simple, I say, what goes up must come down. <laughs> um, but what's phenomenal about that is when we work with different pharmaceuticals, pharmaceuticals that we know are blunting or abolishing that descending pain pathway, oftentimes if there is osteoarthritis involved, we will still see an afferent signal, but we do not see that descending pain pathway signal. And it's based upon what's happening within the CNS. So it provides us not only the ability, as Ralph said, to look at baseline for chronic pain states, and whether we start out with a negative baseline and over maybe two months of treatment, we can move to a positive baseline. We look at a lot of multimodal treatments, but additionally, then the ability to use an orthopedic examination and see the acute pain responses in relationship to flexion, extension of a joint or palpation and identify the location of the pain and then track that for improvement. But it's really a simple, what comes up must go down. A follow-up question, does each patient need to establish their baseline or is there a normal range? In general, there are standard range, ranges. Um, so for instance, if we were looking at healthy, maybe two-year-old dog, no hip dysplasia, um, no cervical spine issues, we generally see that it could be around a plus three, plus four is a nice healthy range. In larger dogs, we may see that we get into a slightly more positive value at a plus six, plus eight. Um, but when we get into painful states, they could be a minus three, and that may be a single joint that's involved. Uh, we have worked with individuals that are poly joint involved or 
polyanatomical pain state. And those we start to see more around a minus 20. We have also done some work surgically and dependent upon what the source or the etiology of the pain, the numbers can get a little bit more negative. They can be in the negative 50 range where there's something else that's occurring. But in general, an older, maybe eight plus year old canine, we'll see maybe if they're around a one, <laughs> woohoo, you know, plus one. Um, but we generally see minus three, minus 10, minus 20 as the standard ranges. And an equine athlete, the values are different because now we're getting into like positive 20s in an athlete, larger species. But yeah, there are some standard values that we definitely gravitate towards. One thing that I'm interested in, would it be ideal that a patient that comes to your clinic annually, since it's puppy shots for wellness exams or elective procedures, would it be helpful to establish a baseline early in life? And then as you follow that patient through, as they maybe develop some of these chronic conditions, you can then more effectively manage that patient. The answer is yes. Yes. The primary reason that people present to their physician is because something hurts. We see veterinary patients because they're showing obvious signs of some disease or maybe it's a dysfunction. If our patients could bring themselves to us, it would be because something hurts, just as is typical with human patients. Um, and since they don't tell us through their behaviors with any level of real sensitivity, we really need this tool. We need a way to assess the animal's level of pain as a baseline every time we run a trace. We'll get a baseline. But if we could include a pain assessment as a part of our regular physical examination, we would, I believe, identify situations and conditions in animals that need attention. And we can turn that situation around for that animal by early attention. We all know that's true with osteoarthritis. We know it's true with regard to subclinical causes of pain uh, like a tendon injury or stress fracture or a latent infection or other latent disease that just has not manifest itself. And so this could easily and certainly be incorporated into a regular physical examination to see how that patient is doing at that time. And we do uncover disease, sources of pain in patients that we look at. And if we fail to use the technologies that's there, we're going to miss some pathology that needs attention. I really feel that this device can really change our patients' lives by catching some of these pain states early on. You mentioned some of those acute surgical pain syndromes that you can detect. I'd like to ask a little bit more about that in the anesthetic suite in an unconscious, so anesthetized patient, perhaps a patient with a local regional block. Let's think epidural or a femoral sciatic nerve block. Could this device be used to assess acute pain, ineffective pain treatment in unconscious anesthetized patients. You've been looking at the website, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> we have beautiful data on that, actually. And that's one of the things that enamored me with this technology is one of the early traces that Deb shared with me uh, was a, a patient under anesthesia had a terrible nail disease. And it was this dog was getting its nail work done on all four feet under anesthesia. 
we're not talking about locals right now, but under anesthesia, we would still see spikes when each foot was being treated. And indeed, if we expanded the scale, stretched out the time scale, we saw a spike representing a painful event when each toe, each nail was being addressed. And then later in this case, when local anesthetics were administered, the good local block totally obliterated the signal. And that's another piece of evidence that we have that fits in with our current paradigm, if you will, of general anesthesia that relies much more on local anesthetics as a component of multimodal pain management because we block the transmission of those pain fibers. So indeed, yes, to answer your question, this can be a valuable tool in assessing the efficacy of a local anesthetic block. And I would imagine sometime down the road, you know, three of us here have a strong background in veterinary anesthesia, and Deb has wandered into this field through her engagement and leadership in this device and company. So you're right that we are slanted toward anesthesia analgesia, certainly here. But personally, I'd love to see the day when this technology is incorporated into a multi-parameter patient monitor for surgery and anesthesia. I myself have used it in a number of patients anesthetized, and I can tell you it's been valuable to help guide my clinical management. Related to blocks, there have been multiple examples where, one, we've worked with individuals who are pivotal in the anesthesia world. They had a block for the brachial nerve. It was ultrasound guided. And during the surgery for a distal humerus fracture, it got to the point that the anesthesiologist and myself were looking at each other every time they were elevating the appendage to bring it to the level of the C-arm and they were pulling on the appendage and we were seeing pain peaks. That dog did wake up painful and I spoke with the anesthesiologist afterwards and he said, I don't think I, I got that block. And I said, okay, good to know because we saw acute responses at these exact times during the surgery. But on the flip side of that, having a student resident do a block and be able to watch the pain trace real time and see the signal start to slope to the positive in a very sharp slope and being able to turn to the student and go, wow, that was a really great block. Would you like to see it? <laughs> I think that there's a possibility that not only can we teach and be able to provide feedback, but additionally, the ability to ensure that the block is sufficient. And that example was a very appropriate one because the brachial plexus nerve block is one that is associated with a very high failure rate. It's a very diffuse block. It's a very difficult one. Even using electrical nerve stimulation techniques or ultrasound guided techniques, even with the advanced modalities, there's a high failure rate in brachial plexus blocks. So the addition of this modality could be really valuable in verifying a good functional nerve block. There are many nerve blocks in which we have some caregiver placebo bias. We want them to work and we think they work. And it's likely that many of the nerve blocks that we perform just do not have the value that we think they do. So we have a lot of bias in having performed those nerve blocks. And so having an objective assessment tool really helps us verify that we have a good block or we'll refute if we don't have a good nerve block. So. Uh, yeah, I, I like your idea for application of this in that context. 
So you see this not only being used potentially in the anesthetic space, but in the pre-analgesics, pre-anesthesia, and perhaps even into the post-anesthetic period where they're recovering and those blocks are wearing off and we're transitioning potentially to oral medications and modalities for treatment of pain as well? 100%. So we did some work with Tammy Grubb at Washington State University and we were following the dogs post-operatively for TPLO. And to the point that after the surgery, we had the dogs monitored overnight and we looked at the trace the next day and we saw a big peak and we went, what's that big peak? <laughs> and we went back because we were also video recording and we could see that that was the exact moment that the dog needed to go outside and have a bio break. As we'll call it. Um, so it's fully capable of monitoring postoperatively, understanding the difference between dysphoria and discomfort, and also being able to determine if the analgesic that is administered was sufficient in dose and has managed to take the patient out of a negative pain state into a positive non-painful state. And it's something that you can just watch. This allows for an individualization of medical care. We have <laughs> tremendous individual variability in the efficacy of a treatment and in the duration of effect of a treatment. And that certainly plays true with post-operative analgesics. Some animals clear their drugs more rapidly than others for factors that we understand and sometimes don't fully understand. So this offers an opportunity to help individualize medical care in a way that addresses developing needs in the perioperative setting. One thing that resonated with me that Deb just said was trying to differentiate between a painful patient versus mm -hmm. one that's waking up rough due to dysphoria, emergency delirium, do they have a full bladder? What a great way to help us and as a follow-up to that, I know that we advocate the use of pain scales, and there's some validated pain scales for various species. Has there been any work to help either further validate pain scales or to help correlate the two? They can maybe use it to help them use their pain scales more efficiently and accurately. We did some work at the University of Tennessee for post-hemilaminectomy surgery, and in that work, we were comparing pain trace to algometer scored palpation and Glasgow. And we were following the patients postoperatively. Uh, the algometer and pain trace had very distinct statistical correlation. The scale also had good correlation, but it did depend on who was doing the scoring. And you could see when the scale was being utilized by an individual that was classically in the emergent setting uh, versus a student. <laughs> and there was some variability there. So I think that to your point, there is a possibility to, yes, aid individuals in fine tuning their utilization of scales and at the same time, there's an opportunity to have an objective number that we all look at and we can 
maybe communicate with each other and say, we moved from a plus one to a negative four over the last hour. I think maybe we would want to consider X. What are your thoughts? And it puts everybody on the same page. Help our audience understand exactly what the application process is. Do you find that the electrodes that you are adhering to the skin, are there any common problems or issues with that? The system, we have timed this thousands of times, it seems. It's five minutes to apply the system. I have had one or two really fluffy dogs where I felt like aborting. I won't lie. <laughs> uh, but the sensor placement for companion animals is in the axilla. A troubleshooting point is you really do need to place those sensors cranial in the axilla. If you're too caudal, you won't pick up on the acute responses. We have a technical support team that is there to support any of our users and they actually evaluate initial pain traces to ensure that the data is accurate and that all the sensor placements are where they need to be. It's not a steep learning curve, but we make sure that it's supported. The sensors essentially sitting in the axilla, which is a very simple place to anatomically determine and making sure that they are placed more cranial in that position is the other key factor that we found over time in working with individuals is making sure that the skin is completely cleaned. You really have to clean the skin because any oils or debris that's in that area for skin contact can interfere with the signal. Uh, so skin prep is important. So the last part would be making sure the sensors stay on. <laughs> um, and that I think is not unique to any sensor. What we use is we use SkinTac. SkinTac is an organic product used in the human world for diabetic sensors. You can do a couple of swipes of SkinTac and then on clean, well-prepped skin, apply the pain trace sensor. And we find that dogs and cats can be mobile. We often see walk, trot, sit to stands bracketing orthopedic exams. Also for post-operative recovery, the sensors have been worn for easily 24 hours. So keys are good skin prep, <laughs> put on some skin tack so it sticks and go into that axilla and just make sure that you're cranial enough so you have the right position. And if I can continue with that, those stick on electrodes in dogs and cats, it's in axillary space. They're smaller than a quarter. We clip the area underneath there, as Deb mentioned. In horses, it's below the second cervical vertebra. And in humans, it's on the palm on the subthenar eminence. It's actually the portion of the palm next to the carpus, oriented with the fifth finger, if you will. And so those are classic locations for those different species. Those stick-on electrodes are then connected by a wire lead to a small device that's smaller than a pack of cards, about the size of a cigarette lighter, I guess, if anybody's old enough to remember what an old Zippo lighter looks like, maybe a little bit larger than that. And then that device communicates by 5.0 Bluetooth to a tablet, and the tablet communicates with a Wi-Fi signal to cloud storage. 
and the signal is immediately available for the data analytics crew that's located in Prince Edward Island. And so the availability of, of those good people as a resource, Deb alluded to them earlier, but they do have the data appearing pretty much instantaneously during a recording of a trace. And we wanna provide that support to our people who are using the device. The small device that communicates with the tablet is then fastened and Deb mentioned some vet wrap or we have pouches also that can contain the device on a dog's collar. And on a horse, for instance, we can, as a result of the 5.0 Bluetooth, we can acquire a signal as a horse uh, runs around a racetrack. So it's, uh, or a person could be walking around in a clinical setting after surgery, uh, or a a dog or or another veterinary patient could be walking around in the course of an orthopedic examination, a lameness examination, or manipulating different joints, different parts of the body to look for a stimulus that would result in a spike. In other words, we're using the device to indicate a painful condition. And by using it while we're undergoing a physical hands-on examination of the animal, we can thereby identify locations that are associated with pain. This is fascinating. Do you foresee this is something that could be on my Apple Watch? We foresee that this is potentially something that could be utilized by individuals to monitor their overall state, for sure. It's been actually a very concerted decision that we want to engage the health provider, the professionals first, because we think it's really important that they be the individuals that understand the system and understand the system in their hands. And then as it moves into the consumer's world, it becomes something that is a communication tool that both parties can use to be on the same page, right? There's a mutual understanding. And as a result, you're a team that is using a tool to improve the overall quality of life together. I love the mention of team. I think our audience is gonna already have made some conclusions on how they could implement this in practice, but I'd like to ask you all for your insight on utilization of the entire veterinary care team, including the client or pet parent, and how you see this device working into the facets of the veterinary industry and those involved in providing care to the pet. This is a opportunity to engage all parties and to partner with our clients in pain assessment and to partner with all of our staff in pain assessment. None of us can do this alone. In the veterinary hospital, we have a hard time evaluating the patient's behaviors because they will obscure signs of pain. This technology is something that can be applied by veterinary personnel. Credentialed veterinary technicians, veterinary nurses, support personnel can be engaged in as the pain person in the practice, empower them with the interaction with the clients, using this technology, applying the technology, acquiring the trace, the importance of this and how it can be used in therapy to guide adjustments in drug therapy, addition of another modality, and have those discussions with the clients to follow up with the clients during rehab sessions, for instance, or to review with the client's current therapy, assess the animal's 
pain state in a follow-up visit. And the veterinary staff, the veterinary technicians, the veterinary nurses, all have a role to play in that as well as the veterinarians. So it's not a, a single individual or a single group of people in the practice. And indeed, we believe strongly that we must engage the clients and that this technology allows us to provide data to the clients, to provide objective representation of the success or need for more attention in each individual patient. I think this is extremely valuable validation of what we're trying to do for the animal and a way that we can determine if we need to make changes and then share that result immediately and visually and graphically with the clients in a way that they can appreciate. So for those practitioners out there that are currently using the pain trace, how are they incorporating it into their practice? Are they using it in their wellness exams or only to evaluate current treatment and assessing the response to treatment? And where do you see it used most commonly? Where would you like it to go? There are a variety of manners that individuals incorporate pain trace. So some of the individuals we work with are predominantly pain management practices. So we'll see that they have a patient referred, they'll do an initial examination. Classically, we see one of the personnel from the non-certified personnel maybe do the skin prep and get that part portion of the pain trace prep completed. We then see uh, the certified individuals, personnel come through, they do a walk, trot, sit to stand, so we have some activity, bracketing an orthopedic exam, and then followed by that walk, trot, sit to stand. They will go on to utilizing the particular modality or multimodal approach that they want to use to treat. And from that perspective, depending on what modality, to Ralph's point, you can actually optimize uh, the treatment We've actually seen laser applied to the painful side, you know, a left hip, and we see immediate improvements with the pain trace. Whereas if we go to the contralateral non-painful hip, we see no change. Even just changing the positioning of that laser or even looking at acupuncture and seeing minor peaks in acupuncture points that are related to the etiology of the pain or a pain acupuncture point could be insights into what are the next steps or further delving into the etiology. So from that perspective, when we're looking at pain management specialties, those are kind of the workflow. A non-certified individual does the prep. We follow through with certified individual doing activity, walk, trot, sit to stand, orthopedic exam, then after that, and then follow up with the client. In wellness exams, we've had multiple utilizers of pain trace and often be very surprised at the outcome. One particular story is an individual that had a person coming in for general vaccine appointment on a Groupon, and they decided to pain trace the dog. And it went from a Groupon vaccination appointment 
to, wow, I had no idea that my dog had cervical spine pain to yes, 100%, I would want to treat that. And the patient and the veterinary staff all were high fiving <laughs> because it went from a, wow, we just watched a dog that we know is painful walk out the door to, wow, we have a dog that came in that probably would not have received treatment, have commitment to full treatment. And now we all can be happy to know that that patient's life is better. We've mentioned dogs, equine, humans, um, applications in other species like cats, maybe birds or reptiles. Uh, birds and reptiles are currently a challenge, but we do have a veterinary practice that is looking at reptiles. Um, but this, uh, we do have um, exotics as well. So uh, we've done fairly extensive work in rabbits as well as guinea pigs. Other groups that we work with, of course, are, are cats or feline. We also, in addition, as you mentioned, so it's a human, dog, cat, equine, bovine, also porcine as well, and a few of the smaller species. And one of the things that we're seeing a lot more of, Ralph and I were talking about this in advance of this conversation, is just the simple fact that we're seeing a lot of interest from industry in pain trace related to animal welfare. It's a multi-species signal. It really is, we're being tasked with animal welfare in research. It's something that we find to be important that we have the potential to decrease cohort sizes, to increase statistical significance, and at the same time, ensure animal welfare in that process. That efficiency allows us to potentially really honor the individuals that are utilized in research. It's something that we just want to make a difference if we can. One of the ways that we try to make a difference, we collective in veterinary medicine and people who are involved in animal research is through addressing the four R's of reduction, refinement, replacement, and respect for the animals. And the variability that we have within an individual with pain trace signal and the variability between individuals is pretty tight so that statistically we can power a study with a smaller number of individuals. So that's really addressing the reduction of animals that are necessary in research to reach a point of validity in a study. So we're reducing the number of subjects necessary and we're certainly refining the technique. We're offering the refinement of the ability to recognize pain in animals where that's been a challenge. That's been a challenge. Uh, years ago, one of our heroes in pain assessment, Dr. Bernie Hansen at North Carolina State, had been involved in a long study of post-operative pain and spay procedures. And his comment after going through a rather arduous task of data analytics and research study his comment was that with regard to the assessment of pain in animals, now we look through a glass darkly. And it's kind of a reference to an old biblical quote that hopefully in the future we'll be able to see more clearly. His comment was more than 20 years ago. And so I believe that now we are seeing things more clearly. So this is a refinement in our approach that allows us to help address the questions of animal welfare. I think that's awesome. And not only in the biomedical research space, but have you seen any use in 
wildlife rehab, rescue, zoos, that sort of thing, where you may have these animals that you have to view from afar, but there may be an opportunity when they're immobilized or anesthetized for their exams to maybe assess some, to see if they're painful, because they may be hiding their pain very, very well from us. I had the opportunity a couple of months ago to use the device on a really old chimpanzee in a sanctuary situation that was undergoing medical care for a chronic condition. And so we certainly have an interest there. And so far, we don't have large numbers in that, but that's kind of an aspirational goal to be able to address needs in those animals where we may not have as good an understanding of their typical behaviors as we do with most of our domestic animals. And if if I can add in, I just want to say thank you for including us on your podcast, because one of the biggest barriers to our ability to work with wildlife refuge or zoos is just the simple fact that they might not know that we exist. Mm -hmm. And and we're Mm -hmm. quite busy. (laughs) And a funny story Before I realized that Pain Trace works with sedated patients, I had a conversation with a veterinarian at the Bronx Zoo, and this was quite a few years ago. And he said, we would love to use Pain Trace. It's just that we usually anesthetize our tigers. And I went, ooh, good point. (laughs) And at the time, I didn't realize that the system worked under sedation. But uh, I think that if your listeners hear this and they're interested, we would appreciate them reaching out to us because it's our perspective that we can be decent partners to make a difference in the care. So let's take advantage of that. And would you mind sharing the best means that they can reach out to you and connect with you all? I think the best way to reach out to us is via our website. Our website has a decent amount of information. And there's a spot where you can click and type in a little message about what you're interested in. And to Ralph's point, our team is quick to respond. So we'll get right back to you with information. And then if you have a question about something that's not on the website, no problem. We have stacks of information in the background and it's just a matter of finding enough time to bring them forward for people to learn and exchange and communicate with us. So the website's certainly the best place to start. If you Google Pain Trace, it comes up as the first option in my Google. But the website is pain, P-A-I-N-T-R-A-C-E.com. If you go to that, a chat has actually just populated and asked me if I had any questions today. So you should be able to quickly navigate to that website and get in contact with someone. You also asked, what would we want the listeners to have as a takeaway? What would we want? for them to think about when they think about pain trace. And I think that one of our core missions is that we want to support the pain-free pet. We know that pain trace can identify chronic pain instantaneously. And we know that in conjunction with an orthopedic examination, we can localize pain. From there, it becomes a tool that detects some underlying etiology. And we have the ability to partner for directed care. And as Ralph said, personalized care, because this is a unique pain measurement for each individual. And from that point, we also see Pain Trace as a really important communication tool. 
not only between colleagues and the ability to have an objective measurement, whether it's between a general practitioner and a specialist or within a particular animal hospital and two individuals just discussing what to do next for that patient. But for the veterinarian and the client, the communication tool that Paintrace offers is, is something that we are always amazed uh, when we see the client saying, wow, I had no idea that my dog or my cat is in pain. And yes, I want to pursue treatment. And yes, I want to continue treatment. My rehab bundle is complete, but I know that we need to add on. It, it really can be groundbreaking. Can you address what the cost per patient is for the pain trace? Um, yeah, I can chat about that. So the pain trace is a, a monthly subscription. It comes with a software, iPad, so you can visualize real time. And there are sensors that you purchase separately. And for each of the visits, it would be $4 for the consumable part of the system. In general, so you can decide on what your goals are, but we've really reached a rather economical cost for the pain chase. It's $400 a month, and we find that people charge somewhere between $35 and $50 for the pain chase, and some people charge more than that. They roll it into special wellness exams, or they add it on as a line item to a dental procedure or add it on as a line item to a surgery or put it into a rehab bundle doing pre, intra, and post rehab so that you can follow the patient's progression. Uh, and that's just something that people in price individually, but if we just stick to a very basic, you charge $35 to $50, you use it three times a week, you will come out even anything more than that is profit. And that is accompanied with the analytic team watching the data. So you're getting the technical support and analytics. Absolutely. Yep. And they watch the data in the background, especially when you first start. So they can evaluate if there's something anomalous with your trace, they'll contact you. They also will do a quick review of the trace with a data review so that you become more comfortable interpreting the data yourself. And then you're off and running. I think that's great. It's a small price to pay to make sure that our patients' pain is being managed effectively. In a world of hurt, this is kind of a game changer. Uh, Hippocrates wrote a long time ago, divine is the work to relieve pain. And he didn't mean that it was nice or kind. He meant it's the work of the gods, really, when he said it was divine. But we know now there's so much we can do increasingly to effectively manage pain. But how can we help unless we know how they hurt? And this addresses that very big need. Now, we focused a lot on our more typical small animal patients, but uh, I would like for us to make a few, to provide a few comments for you on the other species that we haven't spent as much time talking about. And primarily, I want to was to think about human patients and also applications in horses, because I see that as a really big need right now. 
on our website, we have a testimonial from a Kentucky Derby winning trainer who says that in his long career, he hasn't seen anything as effective as pain trace in identifying animals that should not be raced. And we've tragically seen repeated episodes in some of the top tracks where they've had breakdowns of horses and loss of animals. And the entire industry is in jeopardy, I think. And we may have the opportunity to help identify some of those animals who have subclinical pain, who should not be raced, who should be rested and treated instead. And other attempts to address the problems have only been marginally successful. So I think we need new approaches to identify those animals to address their needs. Deb, I'd, I'd like for you to comment on the applications in humans because it's a reflection of where we're going right now and um, aspiring to play a role in clinical human medicine as well. Thank you, Rob. Quite frankly, there has been quite a bit of work uh, behind the scenes with pain trace. And we are also contracted to work with pharmaceutical companies and industry on a regular basis just for the nature of our work as a clinical research outcome measure and um, the privacy of that data, some of that work doesn't necessarily see the light of day. But our work has spanned pharmaceutical studies where we've done placebo-controlled meloxicam group and an active ingredient group with pain trace. To Ralph's point, um, we have been quite active in the human space, comparing pain trace to human self-report in rotator cuff studies, so shoulder studies with 10 different orthopedic maneuvers um, have resulted in highly statistically significant data. If we get into the Ps, you know, we're talking 0.004s and Rs of 0.7, or lower back pain and humans looking at five consecutive inpatient visits looking at pre and post treatment for those individuals and correlating the deltas of the pain trace with the deltas of the self-reported pain. Um, again, P's of less than 0.001. Large studies with over 70 equine individuals compared to veterinary diagnoses, orthopedic exams compared to boarded pain management veterinarians. There's been a fair amount of work done we have also contracted with multiple companies this particular year in human studies. And to Ralph's point, I think that our work in human only aids veterinary and our work in veterinary only aids our work in human. Mm-hmm. In working in both the animal health space and the human health space, there are so many synergies The work in both regions of medicine is critical because there's so many synergies between the two. Um, I think that speaks to the one health that we are striving for. And this is just a great example of how we can achieve that. Absolutely. A couple of other very painful conditions that we've been able to help draw some attention and some study toward are in human patients with migraine pain and the pain of endometriosis. Uh, mm-hmm. So fortunately, there's some hope for better therapies now with migraine in particular, and endometriosis is still a very, very under-addressed and inadequately addressed, very painful condition. We do have strong data on patients with endometrial pain and other types of visceral pain. I'm hopeful we can help make a difference in human medicine and that we will have eventually FDA approval for use in human clinical medicine in addition to what we're now doing experimentally in humans. 
Yeah, we anticipate human approval um, over the next year. Is there anything regarding this device that you would like our audience to know that we have not talked about? We're working with surgical patients. With the pain trace data, we've been observing that the initial pain state or the initial anxiety state has a large indication role in how the patient is managing pain or interpreting pain during the intraoperative period. And in working on the human side, we have a group of individuals that have been phenotyping patients. And we're looking at evaluating the phenotypes, pain chase, and the pain responses so that we can look at, to Ralph's point, individualized care. So we can look at individual, individualized care and we can understand how we might modify the analgesic protocol based upon the initial phenotype. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, let's talk about our, <laughs> our, our redheaded uh, friends and relatives. So yeah, I think that's amazing. So I just wanted to say that because I thought this is really a, one of the things that sometimes is confusing to people when they use pain trace. It's like, why is this individual having a great surgical response? In other words, pain-free. And why is this individual having an aberrant trace? detecting that they're uncomfortable at these different periods during the intraoperative intervention. And we're seeing that it's highly tied to the phenotype, anxiety, or chronic pain in advance of the surgical intervention. And there's a huge opportunity to fine tune how we take care of our patients. I'm super excited to learn all about what we don't know in the future and hopefully the near future, it sounds that this is obtainable. It's just a matter of getting the data, getting it published and then getting it out there. I just think that you two are wonderful and your questions that you posed really allow us to bring what Pain Trace has a possibility to offer um, to the awareness of the public. So I'm super thankful. Thank you, Deb. Thank you, Dr. Harvey, for chatting with us today about this amazing um, pain trace device and how it can really change the lives of our patients as well as ourselves. I would like you to restate the website so our listeners can navigate to that site to make contact with you. Yeah, that is paintrace.com or biotraceit.com. Outstanding. We really do appreciate your time, Dr. Harvey and Deb, for joining us. This was a very fascinating conversation. I thank you for closing the loop, but I wouldn't say closing the loop. Let's just say circling back again. Yes. It feels a little infinity right now with what we might be able to uncover. It, it seems that the possibilities are vast. We also want to thank our Think Anesthesia podcasters and subscribers. We know you have many educational opportunities. We truly appreciate you joining for this episode to learn about Pain Trace with us on the Think Anesthesia podcast. And as always, if you have questions, comments, suggestions, reach out to us at thinkanesthesia at jurox.com.